You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Hey guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and Junior Stock Review. Today with me, I have Kevin McLean, Chief Investment Officer of Star Royalties with me. Uh, Kevin is a returning guest and I'm really excited to have a conversation with him today. You know, we stand at this really interesting juncture in the resource market. Um, a little bit of blip in the precious metals over the last couple of weeks, but then we kind of have another sort of lull in uh, in in the market. And so looking at, at today's market, going back to 2022 and then looking at 2023, Kevin, generally speaking, do you see today's market as an opportunity or something to, you know, buyer beware? Yeah, look, I think it's an opportunity. Uh, as you well know, and perhaps painfully know, we've had this couple of year correction in the gold price. We've actually had a three year correction in gold equities because they didn't keep up with the last gold rally to new high. So it's been painful. Um, not surprising if you're a regular player in the States, you're quite aware you don't want to really want to fight the Fed when they're tightening. You don't expect gold to do very much. So take a more defensive position, maybe a little bit more cash than usual and wait for the opportunity. I think fundamentally we've reached pretty much the end of the Fed rate cycle here. Maybe there's another hike, but I doubt it. Um, maybe there's a six months of current interest rates being maintained at this level, which is not bad for gold. So I think we're, we're okay here. That's the fundamental side. Uh, technically, I follow a lot of technical stuff too, and it's sort of kept me on the bearish side of the market until October, November. So I think we're, you know, we're going to have room for upside here. The new high. Right. So do you think it's, if we're talking about gold, do you think it's mainly fear that, um, in terms of investor sentiment, do you, do you think it's mainly fear that's going to drive people back? Or is it is it a matter of just the gold price responding to an interest rate policy change? It's, for most of my career, it's been the gold price responding to real rate of return on money. Um, but that that has evolved into a situation now where a certain type of fear is the focus. And it's not the fear that you know, Israel and Hamas will keep fighting for six months. It's it's a declining confidence in the quality of U.S. sovereign debt and the U.S. fiscal position. So seven or eight years ago, I used to go around Canada with my PowerPoint deck talking about why own gold. And I remember talking very clearly about the Congressional Budget Office projection for the next 10 years in the U.S. And I said, look, this projection is always optimistic, always. But let's assume the optimistic projection is correct. The current level of debt in the U.S. is going to go from 15 trillion, give or take, to 26 trillion by the year 2026. And current government revenues of three and change trillion could go to five and change trillion. So I said, what do you make of that? Well, if the government's taking in, let's call it five trillion in revenues and their debt 25 trillion, their revenues are only 20% of their debt, right? So if you're paying, let's say, 5% interest on your debt, you know, set a quarter uh, of your revenues are going to the service debt, and you're actually have to borrow that money too to pay the interest on the debt. So I said, you couldn't walk into a bank and expect to get a mortgage with those kind of metrics, right? So I said, what we're seeing here is, you know, a rosy scenario where the U.S. fiscal position is declining rapidly to a point where uh, the AAA credit rating, even if it's sort of artificially maintained because it's never accurate. In, in reality, the credit quality of the U.S. is declining rapidly. And the alternative to U.S. sovereign debt is hard assets, and particularly gold being one of those assets. So now let's roll the clock forward to 2023. Um, rather than the debt being 26 
trillion three years from now, it's 34 trillion now. And rather than government revenues being five and change trillion two years from now, it's 4.4 trillion now. So instead of that sort of 20% revenue to debt ratio, we're at get about 12, which, which is alarming, which means if you're paying 4% interest on your debt, one third of your revenue is going to go to service your debt. Okay. And now that's, that. I'm sorry, that's just junk. That's junk debt. So at some point, um, the market's going to realize that. I think it already has realized it to some degree. And money's flowing into hard assets. You're getting asset inflation like mad. There's no fiscal uh, maneuvering at all in the U.S. government to change the way things are going. In fact, maybe even make it work, hard to say. So I think it's actually critical to your portfolio safety now that you have the highest level of gold exposure that you've ever had. Uh, for the last 30, 40 years, 5 or 6% gold in the portfolio is considered to be good. Um, I'm over 20, so I, I think it should be high. Nassim Taleb has a great quote in Fooled by Randomness. He says, it isn't the probability of an event happening that matters. It's how much is made when it happens that should be the consideration. I was wondering what you thought about Taleb's statement. Yeah, look, that's uh, that's correct math in, in isolation. But I think you have to take that quote in context when you're dealing with the portfolio. So, for example, if I said to you, I'll give you a choice. You can get uh, a 20% return 80% of the time. And the other 20% of the time, you get nothing. Or you can make a 1,000% return 5% of the time. And the other 95% of the time, you make nothing. If you look at that in isolation, you say, oh, 5% of 1,000, that's 50%. 80% of 20, that's 16%. So I can always take that 5% shot. Okay? And in real terms, that's the bet on the junior mining company, you know, putting down a couple of drills, hoping for that 10-bagger. But what that quote, I think, misses is the effect of compounding. Because if you were an investor, I'd say to you, look, in the next 20 years, you're going to have 19 years where you get your return. But in one of those years, you're going to make 10 times your money. Or you can have the next 20 years where in 16 of those years, you're going to make 20% a year. And in four of those years, you're going to make nothing. I think the typical industry would say, I'll take the latter, please. And if, and if you factor in compounding, which is what the quote you gave me misses when applied to portfolio management, the compounding effect will, will show you that you're actually probably about eighty percent better off to take the second lower return, higher probability outcome. So, yeah, um, calculating weighted average portfolio return expectation is part of the toolkit when running your portfolio. I think one of the things that people forget as well, though, is that forecasting those probabilities that this fellow is talking about. You know, what what is the probability of a particular outcome? There's a huge error bar attached to that as well. So nobody really knows right. On the macro scale, how do you sort out uh, between signal and noise and figure out what actually matters? Because like, especially these days, whether it's war in Russia, Ukraine, the Middle Eastern stuff going on, there's there's tons of noise out there. But what is actually important? How do you figure that out? It's the impact of the noise on monetary policy. Okay. So whenever you have a war, a conflict, and gold rallies for a month or two, and you get those sort of 15, 20% rallies, you just sell, 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 sell. Because in my experience, it's never affected monetary policy, ever. So that just means whenever the war settles down or people lose interest, uh, we'll just have reversion to the mean and gold will go right back where it was, then you get the reload your portfolio. So I don't pay much attention to those kind of events. When people are talking about you know, the BRICS countries introducing new currencies and things like that, which could be a strong fundamental change to the monetary order, you have to pay attention to that. Uh, but if you're already 
appropriately weighted in gold, then a positive event like that happening, which say it uh, takes demand away from US dollars and towards hard assets, for example, that's just a bonus return. Uh, you don't sort of position yourself for it, but if it happens at night, conversely, if there's some other um, event happening that could strengthen the dollar dramatically, and I, I think about you know, the plasma board back in the 80s, you're probably too young for this, but you know there were government maneuverings back then to strengthen the dollar, weaken the dollar, and they were very clear on what their objective, and you could certainly respond to that because that could have a major effect on the gold price, and it did. But that's that's a pretty rare event. You mentioned uh, the BRICS and this this talk of you know a competing I guess currency against the U.S. dollar. I, I would I would assume when you look at news like that, how much weight do you put to the the rumors of of a BRIC currency or a gold backed currency? I think is what the main rumor is. Yeah, it's it's hard to assign um, a weight to it. To speak, I just dive into my research and my connections, have chats with with people, and try to come to some kind of conclusion. And I came to the conclusion six months ago that the BRICS was not going to be anything really. So I just ignored it. Um, you know, speculating in the junior sector can incite a number of emotions, especially when you get into bare parts of the cycle like we are in today. Um, how do you maintain your focus and not let emotions seep into your decision making? Well, look, like most investors in the space, you learn some painful lessons and you have to you have to take note and adjust your approach, right? So you have to develop a checklist of things that you want to see you know asset quality obviously is a good starting point if you like the asset that's underlying the company's operations or expiration program sure but then you've got to have management quality uh or directed quality jurisdictional risk capital structure you know all of these things and and sometimes the latter in fact i would say most of the time those latter factors outside of the asset quality itself are what set the price trend up or down uh, because if you have a good asset we know that a weak management team can just destroy that or if you've got the wrong capital structure or your your management company has more of a lifestyle element to the way they do business and uh, nothing nothing's been, been done in a professional way you can just blow up the story so you want to know the track record that people involved uh i personally avoid jurisdictional risk like the plague so that's not a, a factor for me I, I just don't even look i guess someone could say oh this is some phenomenal discovery in uh in the congo you should have a look at it and go no thanks I'm not going to fly there for vacation. I'm not going to go to visit. I'm not going to invest there. So, period. Not not there. Well, you mentioned uh, like the the whole idea of lifestyle company, and Rick Rule says that sort of a quantitative mark that he looks at um, in terms of GNA is 25. percent So, if if the the GNA of a junior company represents 25 percent or under, um, and again, I I, hope, I don't want to put words in his mouth. My interpretation is if if it if it doesn't exceed 25 percent of the current budget, so you you add in what they're drilling or what what they're putting into the ground versus GNA. He says that that is a good level. Do you have a certain spend level on GNA that you say, hey, that's not enough, or is it just every situation is different? I've never quantified it into a percentage like Rick has, but it's certainly a focus of me. Uh, the first thing I look at when I used to have companies calling me up to come see me to get a check all the time, and I've never heard of them in many cases, so I just flip open the financial statements. I would look at the overheads. I would look at how these guys are paying themselves versus what's going to the ground versus what's going into marketing versus what's going into debt service or whatever. And I don't have a number in my head, but most of the time they fail. They fail the entity before they show up because I, I can just see how they're running the company. And sometimes I've got to wait a million dollars and 200,000 ends up in the ground. 
and 800 grand goes for marketing and salaries and other stuff. And so there's like no point. And I've had many occasions where I have a photo company coming in, even if I like what they're doing, I'm saying, you know, you want $2 million. Please come back when you want 10. Because, you know, if you're going to put it even a million and a half into the ground, your market cap's 40, 50 million or something, that million and a half, if your finding cost per ounce is X, blah, 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 I do the math, and you know what? Your stock might go up seven or eight percent if it works. So I don't care. But if you're going to put 10 million and do a serious drill program, guess what? I'll write you a check because then you can really make something happen that the market's going to care about. Because you don't want to have a, a program, let's say a wealth creation for your stakeholders, that is only good enough to get retail investors interested. You got to have the attention of the institutional guys who can write the next $5 million check or $10 million. You want those guys in. So they've got to see that multi-million dollar potential being uh, targeted and achieved in short order, as opposed to, you know, we'll do over six months until the snow comes, and hopefully we'll find uh, 100,000 ounces and, and nobody cares. Is there is there a, like a, what you were just mentioning there? You know the the balance between the number of retail shareholders and you know funds or big strategics. I find there's a, like a company that comes to mind off the top of my head that I'm invested in, like Canorland Minerals. They, uh, I think it's a well run company. It's it's so deeply held by its strategics and its management team um, that its retail portion is so small that it it, it trades. Uh, you know, hardly any volume. And I, I guess I see it from two points of view where I definitely agree um, that, you know, having those strategics, having those those big funds, you know, they've never had a problem with raising money um, and the business has run well, but it doesn't seem to get garner the interest, which kind of leads into maybe the problem with prospect generators to a point. Um, but so to you, is there a balance between the percentage of retail and then the percentage of the big boys? Yeah. So first of all, I've never owned a prospect generator. Um, I would say, look, it's it, uh, a low risk way to play the sector. And over time, you can do okay. It has some sensitivity to the gold price, but not much. It's kind of a low beta stock. Gold's up 10% and it goes up 5 because it's not really direct drive to the cash flow, et cetera. And the main problem with them is if it is a prospect generator, they typically have deals with a whole bunch of counterparties on their various projects that are that optioned out. But those counterparties can be pretty pretty weak. And they don't have a, a predictable uh, timeline of establishing wealth for, for the prospect generator. So it's, it's so hard to analyze that you kind of stay away from, in my mind. And second part of the question about seniors, what, what sorry? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of the, like you mentioned, you know, the, the amount of concentration, the money spent that's, that's there to get the retail investor, oh, yeah, but yeah. You know, the percentage yeah. to get those funds, those big, those big players. Right. Um, so I won't comment on how much money you have to spend to get them because I don't think there's any connection. But clearly, looking at the shareholder registry uh, at the start of your investigation into an opportunity is that where I like to go. If a company has no institutional investors, you might go give up. You don't want to be the first. I, mean, I, I have been the first occasionally, but I would say it's hit and miss. Sometimes it works, sometimes it's disastrous. It's better off because you, you need a series of check writers, guys. Guys can write those million dollar checks time and time again if you're in a developing or exploration program that you're ramping up and if it's all retail there's just no real comfort level that that's going to happen on in a timely basis in which case your stock could be doing well one season and then next season the gold price happens to be down the retail crowd's not there and your stock's down 50 percent and you're like oh you get sequentially lower financing and once you get sequentially lower financing i'm out i mean it it, it, it just never ends well 
I guess it works. Uh, I guess it works the other way too. When some of the funds want to get out, though, because I, there was a company I was invested in last fall, and w- one of the problems that they had is that one of the funds had some redemptions after such a bad year, and they ended the year, and it was it didn't end up being catastrophic because they had some good news. Um, but to try to get ten million shares through a company that trades, you know, twenty thousand a day um, is a is a daunting task. So I guess in the end, it's still how well the company does. Um, to take advantage of those those st- the stability brought in by big shareholders. That's right. And if the fund's having redemptions, it may be because their track record is not good, and it may be because their approach is not good. You know, maybe they're investing in too many things where the boxes aren't being checked and the performance is not good, so the fund gets redeemed, and then it's a kind of a snowball effect. Um, we kind of touched on it uh, just earlier in the conversation, but jurisdictional risk, you know, it's it's definitely real. We see what's going on in Panama right now, and with uh, with the Colbert Panama mine um, and First Quantum, you know it's it's kind of nightmarish when you look at the amount of money that's been spent on that mine and what what it could produce for the country and kind of what what's going on. Um, you know, we had troubles in Chile, uh, you know, a couple of years back. Now we look at Guyana and Venezuela and whatever that may or may not be. Um, so you know, you you did say that you you just avoid the 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 poor jurisdictions. Um, but how do you differentiate between what is a good jurisdiction and what is maybe necessarily a no-go? First of all, they have to have a decent mining code. Um, but more importantly, they have to respect contract law. And once a jurisdiction starts piling up uh, failures in that regard, where they've established the contract with a mining company from North America, presumably, they come in and done something. And then two or three years later, once the mine's up and running, they look at it and go, well, you know, uh, we think you're actually taking too much money out of the country, that's the minerals belong to the the citizens of the country. We think it'd be fair if you gave us 10% of the project for free. You know, that sort of nonsense. That happens all the time. So once they've done that once, they're out. Period. Or anything like that. You know, I've had seen situations where exploration licenses have been, you know, allegedly in place for years, but all of a sudden they're taken away and given to the cousin of the president. You know, just because they're starting to find something. So that once you see any kind of behavior like that, I'm just I'm out. I'm sorry, I'm never going to. Right. Okay. Well, that, that's that's a that's a good way to because you look at with the Panama situation. I, I'm not totally familiar with it, um, but it's you know it, this is an operating mine that's been I don't know was 20 years already that it's been producing and it's been a, a big 180 on their policy and um, I mean it has dire consequences I think for the people unfortunately and it doesn't seemingly like they they understand. Um, that let, let's say in terms of the jurisdictions that you do like, uh, is it, do you have any sort of discount? Like, do you, do you, do you rank, let's say Canada, the States, or even like the Nevada versus Alberta or BC, is there any way that you have a discount in between or is it just plainly with the, if you like the jurisdiction, it's just plainly what the project's worth? Well, let's just say in Canada, uh, I don't favor the colder parts of Canada. Um, don't invest there very much. Uh, in the states, there's a few northern states, the U.S. I don't invest in very much because they're a little more environmentally sensitive, which is not a bad thing, but it just means that the path to success is more difficult. And sometimes there are roadblocks brought in. And in my early days as a portfolio manager, I used to assign countries that were on the you know sketchy side a 25% discount. Okay, uh, and then in North America or Australia, you know, five or six percent is fine. I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't really differentiate. But then after a while, I figured that 25% wasn't even high enough. It just, it just went to 100%. It's not going to be there. And even in North America, you know, on development projects, 
even under good management, good project, good timeline, well-funded, 15 to 20% discount rate in the marketplace is actually find that normal. People say, oh, that's not fair, my stock's undervalued. Not really, because there's there's risk attached to doing these things. And my empirical observation over three decades is 15 to 20% is quite normal. It does MP, the MP, we're talking going to the developers now. Uh, I think, especially in the precious metals portion of the market, the developers have to be probably the most depressed. You know, the, the explorers too, but maybe across the board, I'd say developers are pretty, pretty hurting. Um, looking at the developers, and especially those ones that have that feasibility but complete and they're right on that cusp of a construction decision, looking at the MPV to CapEx ratio, um, do you think that the the ratio has to be greater than one to be constructible or to interest you as an investor? Yeah. yeah. So I'll give you an example on the on the math. If you have a 10-year mine life that you're about to build and start your cash flow in one year's time, and <clears throat> your CapEx to NPV is one to one, that's about a 22% IRR. If it's one to two, it's about a 35% IRR. If it's one to three, maybe it's 50, something like that. So they take 22%. Um, put that in the context of the error bar on the economic study attached to the project. So a PEA, you know, the rule of thumb is it's plus or minus 30% error bar on the analysis. It's never plus, by the way. <laughs> it's only minus. <laughs> and on the on the PFS, it's supposed to be plus or minus 15%. Again, never plus, only minus. And on the feasibility, it's supposed to be, you know, pretty immaterial, but not always, could still be 5 or 10%. So if that's your error bar, and they're offering you 22%, let's say, and your error bar might be 20%. So what do you got there? So it's, it's The risk reward is, for me, not acceptable. And in, in general, by the way, the out, whatever outperformance I had as a portfolio manager in the sector was by avoiding development projects and by focusing on, on high wealth generating aspiration stories. Um, that, that whole mind build thing, that's the last place you want to be in the mind. And yeah. then that's directly correlated with the Lasson curve. That's- yes, yeah, because okay. the Lasson curve characterizes the nature of capital flows. So the capital flows are into a company when it's exploring and creating wealth. The second they stop doing that and start figuring out how to build this thing, the capital leaves, go somewhere else, right? So the stock goes down again. And then if you're patient, it'll eventually get back up to whatever it's worth with an operating company. But that that's just how how it moves. Right? You don't want to be in this part. Forget it. Uh, you're talking about capital flows, uh, you know. We look at what's happened in the the market right now, and, and very much the capital has been leaving the resource sector. Um, and you know, you, you mentioned in the first question that we could be on the cusp of of a change here, not only because of policy, but you know, we've definitely reached uh, in terms of the equity valuations, right, probably somewhat of a bottom. So, how do you track? What what is? Are you using anything in particular to tell you the signal? Hey, the money is starting to flow back in. Is it just a matter of the equities going up, or is there anything else that you look at to say, okay, the flow of the money is coming back into this market? Um, yes. So, uh, you, look, you have to understand the fundamentals for the gold market and what tends to move gold price up and down sustainably up, in particular, uh, which is those negative real rates of return on on bills etc and that can drive gold higher for years back in the early 2000s uh, massive hedge short positions in the mining industry were being offset and that was a powerful driver for the gold price going up so you know there are some fundamental drivers like that and you have to understand and and accept that hey i feel good about gold now because these things are happening but in a more neutral um environment or a trading range environment like we've had for the past few years if you want to stay active in the space 
And first of all, if you're fighting the Fed tightening, you have, you have to expect a tough slug here. So if you want to be in the space, you better be a, a decent trader. Otherwise, you're just going to sit there and watch your portfolio over time drift lower. And so I'm a big fan of trading. I, I think the sector is highly volatile. Uh, one of the big components of return for me was capturing sector volatility. So I'm a big fan of trading. If you're going to be a big fan of trading, you might develop a gut instinct for it. It's hard to do. Um, I, I just found there were technical tools that I could use that would help me decide what I wanted to be overweight, underweight in a, let's say a sideways market. And, and it'll include cycle analysis and Elliott wave patterns and, and point and figure pattern, um, chart patterns in general. I look at all that stuff. And, and none of those things works all the time. Believe me, they don't. But when you look at three or four different ways of technically assessing the marketplace and they're all flashing green, you're probably okay. If they're all flapping red, you're probably not okay. So even back in the 20, sorry, yeah, 2000, when I was an analyst at Royal Bank, the technical analyst at Royal Bank had a, a simple oscillator that he used to, to trade the gold sector with. And, and some of it got to work pretty well. And so I started with that and used that as well. And so yeah, I have a few tools like that, but you have to have some sort of technical opinion uh, on the price trend as well. Otherwise, you're just adrift. Uh, there are a number of companies that I follow that are testing the market for financing packages. Uh, a junior developer who secures financing, um, you know, this is a positive, a negative, or a mute point for senior producers to acquire a project. Like, is like I've heard the different different viewpoints of, you know, somebody that goes out there starts the build or secures that financing packages can be a negative when you know the the senior producers want to do things their own way. So, how do you you view that if a junior developer does secure the financing? Is that a positive, ne negative, or Mute. Well, well, typically, they, look, the, the junior developers these days are trading at the lowest valuation I've ever seen in my career. Like Caliber just bought Marathon for 0.4 times NAV, according to one research piece that I read. I know other, like I-80, I think it's trading at 0.3 times NAV. It's a good project, but they're just getting trapped. And so you think ordinarily uh, a senior would want to come in and own those things, but a senior won't touch them unless there's a couple of million ounces there already with potential to grow more. Other than that, if it's too small, they don't care. So in our world, we're probably dealing with guys from smaller projects than that who want to get built, you know, the 50,000 to 100,000 producer guys. And the seniors just don't care, to be honest. The guys that do care, be the smaller intermediates and, and the smaller producers, they, they will care. And they will be more, I think, uh, positively affected by a junior company getting some financing. They think, okay, that's, that's a risk off my balance sheet. These guys are funded. Now I can go and talk with them and see if they want to merge. Okay. If they're not funded, then I don't want to take their balance sheet risk and capex risk on the my balance sheet because I'm not quite that strong yet. So that that's the game being played. But the other game being played is if you go out and get, you know, fifteen percent debt like some of these guys do, uh, that I think that's a huge negative because no one wants to acquire that. And I think tactically speaking, if you're playing the game of, of when to come in and, and go after a company like that, you say, Well, look, these guys are gonna get themselves in trouble. They got this really brutal debt to carry, one slip, and they're back against the wall. The share price is down 50%, and then I can go talk. So, if it, it was all equity, which is rare, because you know, one thing you're very cognizant of is the fact that if the market cap for the company is 50 million and they need to raise 200, guess what? It's not happening. <laughs> it's not happening. So, it's just a matter of playing the waiting game until these guys basically reach out for a, a strategic tutor to, to make this progress. This this brings us to talking about mining construction financing. Uh, you know, we're in an interesting point in the market where 
the royalty and streaming companies seem to be one of the the best choices for a junior to finance the the building of a mine. Um, and it, it's something that I think is, you know, it definitely seems to be cyclical when when that cost of capital is best attributed to the the royalty and streaming place. You know, we saw it with uh, G Mining and the Franco Nevada deal, where you know it was a it was a royalty and you know an equity and, and debt deal across the board. So, in your view, is the royalty and streaming the place to be in terms of of finding good terms for financing packages these days? Yeah, look, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with. CEO of junior companies that needed money. And we've had the conversation that saying, look, your debt cost of capital, if you can even get it, is let's say 12 to 15%. Your equity cost of capital, with you trading at 0.5 times NAV, is 20 something percent. We can offer you single digit cost of capital based on your no resources. And we hope to win, obviously, if, if you win. So if you win and your first resources expand, your production expands, you're happy, we win too. But in the meantime, we're the cheapest option for you. And what we're doing for you is is neutral or accretive to your valuation because you're taking that finance, you're, you're reducing that financing risk for one, which the market will love. You're getting validation of whatever you're doing because the outside third party has you know, brought in their experts to have a look and, and, and decided that things are investable. So it, it's a win-win. And if, again, if you have to, happen to give away some ounce of life of mine 10 years from now because your expertise to death is good, no one's going to come back at you and say, hey, you should have done that road 10 years ago. You know, it's not going to happen. And the other thing is that you just um, intimated the really cool thing about a royalty solution is it could be part of a bundle solution. Okay, let's get this thing done. Like, I don't want to be the guy putting in 100% of your financing. Let me put in 10 or 20%, maybe 30, 40% equity and the rest of debt, you know, and, and the debt comes with a lower coupon because you got the other stuff uh, backing the debt. So the collateral value has gone up, et cetera. So I like the total solution using a, a royalty component. I think that's the best way to go. Right on. Is the, the royalty and streaming sector is is quite interesting. There's a number of smaller players, you know, such as Star Royalty that are have been you know burgeoning their way and developing themselves. Um, at the top, you know, Franco Nevada and some of the Wheaton uh, precious metals have are definitely you know massive uh, uh, times bigger than these smaller companies. What do you think is going to be the catalyst for these guys to start you know acquiring some of the smaller companies moving forward? a good question. Uh, I will say when I was a portfolio manager, I think I owned virtually every royalty company that ever came into the marketplace because I thought I just like the business model. And as long as it wasn't, you know, too exotic, you know, investing in the depth of Africa or something, I would own them. And I had four or five of them taken off my hands uh, through acquisition by the majors, like international royalty, Silverstone, for example. Um, it, it gets to the point where we're in the capital arbitrage business, right? So I'm trying to get the market to give me equity capital or not likely debt, but maybe debt capital and take that and roll it into a royalty and streaming opportunity where I get a higher return or positive spread for me. If the market's going through a cycle, a down cycle where your valuations are depressed, you can no longer arbitrage capital successfully or you you have to get you know a very happy outcome on the jewelry results. It's something to make you uh, recover the cost of the capital you raise. So at some point, if the treasury of a junior company is inadequate to really keep building the portfolio and all they can do is issue shares to build the portfolio, you're just naturally driving your NAV values to a discount. And then your arbitrage breaks and then you should be receptive to a takeover. That happens. And I'll even say today, if I just carry on for a second, there's a, a 
bunch of small players out there in the uh, royalty space. It's hard to find one with free cash flow. They may have revenue, but do they have free cash flow? Eh, hard to find. Right. Well, that was that sort of leads into my next question: is is the free cash flow the major driver, or is free cash flow that you can see in the future? Um, more desirable? Like, do you think, generally speaking, one is more like, is it free cash flow now or a little bit in the future that's more desirable? Yeah. So when I was managing money, you know, I had a team building models on these investments that we had. So the particular investor might have a 10-year mind life and we might have modeled it out to the nth degree that we can. But I would say to the team, I want a uh, spreadsheet comparing the three-year net asset value or the two-year net asset value for all these companies. Because that'll tell me when is that cash coming in? Is it coming in soon enough that I can expect the stock to move up on that? Or is all the value of this company five years away? And and that and believe me, that really sorted the chat, the wheat from the chat, so to speak, when you saw who was the the winner on free capital generation in the near term. And that almost always corresponded to stock price action. This week, Star Royalties announced a strategic invest twenty one point two million investment by Sonovus Energy into Green Star Royalties. Um, the market has responded. The share price of Star, you know, shot up. Um, can you explain more about the deal and how it benefits shareholders of Star Royalties? Yeah, so Star Royalties started out four years ago as a precious metals focused royalty company, and then we happened to make a small, in fact, they originated a small carbon credit royalty in Ontario. Because we thought that would be a good thing to do to sterilize our very low carbon footprint. And we got so much attention from our stakeholders in that investment that we thought, let's do some more here. So make a long story short, we ended up doing a lot more and we needed money to do it. So we, we got an equal people to come in and, and uh, after they spent over a year checking out what we were doing and then they, they liked it. So they came in as a joint venture partner. Synovus has now done something similar. They've spent many, many months checking out what we're doing, and they've created a joint venture partner. And so I think for us, uh, having two, I'm going to say, ESG leaders in their respective resource sectors, putting a stamp of approval on what we're doing, I think it, it's huge. And I, my knowledge, we're the only real uh, North America-focused carbon credit royalty company. Everybody else is doing things all around the world, and and some of those things aren't going well because of some of the same jurisdictional issues that, that uh, hamper mining, also hamper, hamper apparently carbon credits. So we're we're going to stay close to home, and I think that's that's attractive. But we're going to grow that carbon that green business. We we we've, we've stopped investing in in mining for now because we need the capital to grow, incubate, and grow that uh, carbon credit business into the public domain, and. The mining business, to be honest, it's as interesting as it is, the opportunity to make uh, better returns are in the carbon side. And so we'll see how that goes. We either have to split the company up eventually or sell one half of it or do something with it. But uh, our, our focus for now is, is carbon credits. Excellent. Um, for those interested, I will link to Star Royalties in the description. Uh, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and having the conversation. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks.
The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.